I'm willing to bet that this year has not turned out the way that you expected it to. A year ago, this Sunday, we stuffed ourselves into this cathedral on the Sunday before Christmas, the fourth Sunday of Advent. Linda spoke with us about angelic messengers and the surprises that come when God interrupts our dreams and our plans. Slightly prophetic words a year ago, Linda. Then we trooped over into Kempton Hall for Jennifer's famous gingerbread. We had no idea that our beloved traditions would be so quickly and abruptly interrupted just a few months later. I wouldn't repeat this year if you paid me, to be honest. Timothy Egan writes this morning in the New York Times, the number of adults exhibiting symptoms of depression has tripled. Check. Alcohol consumption has risen. That's none of your business. We are prisoners of our homes and our minds, Zoom fatigued, desperate for social contact. As a nation, he says, we are diminished and exhausted and millions remain out of work. We're a little bit like the children of Israel in Hebrew scripture wandering through the desert for years. And God willing, we're not going to have to wander for 40 years as they did, this wandering. Although sometimes it feels like nine months is like 40 years long, even with a vaccine on the way. I suspect that we are not quite finished wandering yet. Nine months ago, when this all started, a lot of church people I knew were a little bit excited, actually. Finally, they said, we're going to rediscover that Christianity was always meant to be a, a home-based, practice-based religion, not a system of buildings and programs and professional clergy. We don't need churches in order to worship God, these colleagues of mine said. And at some level, we've always known that, right? We've always given that idea lip service, especially here in the Pacific Northwest, where a lot more of us find God in the mountains or in the forests than they do inside the four walls of a Gothic cathedral. We've never, we've never needed church in order to be the church. And some of that has turned out, blessedly, to be the case. Just as David learns in this story from, from 2 Samuel, from Hebrew scripture, God does not need a building from us. God is perfectly fine wandering in the desert alongside God's people, the Ark of the Covenant, God's original tabernacle, that most sacred object in early Israelite religion, it was designed to be a movable shrine. That was the whole point of it, right? You could, you could pick it up and you could take it with you because this God can go anywhere, right? This God is not a, not a magical spirit housed in an idol made of wood or stone. This is the great, like the great scandal of early Israelite religion in the context of the ancient Near Eastern culture. Other gods had temples and shrines and sacred groves. That's where their power came from. That's where their people went to worship them. Not Yahweh, not Israel's God, not the great I am. This is not a God whose power came from nature. It was the other way around, as the ancient Israelites saw it. Nature's power, nature's bounty, nature's beauty, and nature's force came from the God who created everything that is. I mean, how do you, you, know, how do you stuff Mount Hood inside a building? I was up on Mount Hood yesterday for about 20 minutes as, as the clouds broke. We had this amazing vista of this huge mountain peak and I thought, that's what it's like to try to build a temple for God. You can't put that thing inside a building. You can't build a, a shrine for the entire Pacific Ocean. When, when King David is feeling high and mighty, securing his borders and establishing his capital city in Jerusalem, he decides that the next thing that he needs to do is to build a temple for this God who has granted him so much victory. So David consults his you know, his religious and spiritual advisor, this guy that I've always kind of had a soft spot for, a prophet named Nathan. 
And at first, Nathan agrees that, that a, a sort of a cultic center, a temple for the worship of Israel's God, would be a very savvy political move and would lend greater grandeur and dignity to the worship practices of the Davidic monarchy. It's good for God, it's good for David, and it's good for Israel. I expect that Nathan could also see that when the king is the one building God's temple, politics and religion get knit together in a way that only helps the king's cause. It secures his power, it lends him dignity and respect among all of his opponents. But Nathan is no simple yes man to the king. And when God comes to this prophet in a dream, or at night somehow, and says, in essence, a tent is just fine with me, thanks ever so, Nathan is happy to eat his own words with the king. God says, don't worry about building me a house, buddy. I'm going to build you one. That's what God says to David. Your house, the one I'm going to promise you, the one I'm going to build for you, your house is going to be this dynasty, this unbroken line of descendants. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, God says to David. Your throne shall be established forever. There's always been this uncomfortable tension at the heart of Hebrew scripture, and Christians have inherited this tension, right? Those of us on the more kind of radically reformed side of things, we tend to focus on passages like this one, passages about this, this wild God who refuses to, to be shut up into a neat and highly decorated box, but is free to roam, free to bloweth where he listeth, and breathe wherever God chooses. And the irony in this story, of course, is that David's son Solomon does indeed end up building this amazing temple. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this gargantuan facility in Jerusalem that covered more than two football fields. It's not as if God's people decided, based on the prophet Nathan's recommendation, that they were going to be this like, radically decentralized anti-establishment movement of house churches and movable shrines. No, they built the greatest temple the ancient world had ever seen, and when that one got knocked down by the Babylonians, they put another one up 50 years later. So what we're hearing in the Second Samuel story preserved alongside the very detailed descriptions of the grandeur of the temple, what we're reading is kind of like the minority report, right? It's the, it's the critical corrective, the voice of caution against this larger tradition of temple building, actually. And that, that minority voice says, you know, don't get too attached to this stuff. Don't focus too much on the stones and the wood and the stained glass. I mean, love it. It's beautiful. If it brings you closer to God, it's doing what it's meant to. But don't mistake the building for the God in whose honor it was built. Right? That God, it turns out, prefers to be houseless. That God prefers an itinerant lifestyle when all is said and done. And that God has a lot more in store for us as God's people than just like allowing us to return to our houses of worship when all of this is over. When David promises to build God a house, God turns down the favor and he kind of shifts the promise onto David. He says, I'm not asking you to do a thing for me. That's what God says to the king. He says, the promise I'm making, the covenant that we are entering into, it's about what the I am is going to do for you. Christians talk a lot this time of year about God's like, great humility in deigning to be born of human flesh, right? He did not abhor the virgin's womb, we sing. This morning we just sang, not robed in royal splendor, in power or pomp comes he, but clad as are the poorest, such is his humility. As if God is making like, some kind of major concession 
in agreeing to take on human form. We focus on the, the meanness of the manger, the humility of shepherds and peasants, the lowliness of God's handmaiden. But if God's message to the prophet Nathan is to be believed, the humility of being human is not a concession that God is making. God wants it that way. God prefers that way. God has little use for temples and throne rooms. God does seem to carry a kind of a hankering for those original days in the wilderness when it was all a matter of tents and campfires. God never really got used to being stuffed indoors. So you give God a, a soft bed of hay and a feeding trough and a couple animals standing around, God's kind of in God's element, right? This is a God who never really wanted to be anybody's king. That's what the guys like David were for. It's a God who, who consistently resists humanity's urge to enthrone him in gold, put him on a pedestal, dress him up in fine robes, and bow down in worship. This is a God who would so much rather hang out, you know, passing a flask of whiskey around the campfire with you, swapping stories and gazing up at the stars. God doesn't want to be your Lord and Master. God wants to be your buddy. Why is that? Why is God trying, trying to teach God's people this lesson every time God calls a prophet in to say, hey, don't get so comfortable on your couches of ivory, your beds of fine linen. Don't get too reliant on your churches and your cathedrals, your ivory altars and your stained glass. Don't focus so hard on the trappings of a grand enthronement religion and neglect the essence. I mean, maybe the prophets say, maybe what you need is to Spend some time out in the wilderness to get ready to re-enter the sanctuary because the wilderness has something to teach you. The darkness of a, of a starless night in the desert, right? That's not a threat to the domestic life. The darkness, actually, is where the magic happens. The darkness is where God is most at home. Which is why I expect some eight or nine hundred years after God makes this covenant, this promise with David about an everlasting dynasty, the promise of God's radical availability gets renewed, but not in the way anybody saw it coming. It's in the darkness of Mary's body. That's where the seed is planted. That's where the temple is. It's in the darkness of her fear. It's in her, her longing. That's where God begins to take shape, in that murky, uncertain, fearful, hopeful place. We tend to kind of romanticize this scene, right? We were influenced by a generation of artists who have painted the angel Gabriel with gold leaf and cast, given us as Mary as this immaculately white child with blonde hair, her eyes cast demurely down on a book. So we miss sometimes the, the franticness and the fear, the uncertainty in her voice when she demands of the angel, how can this be? This is a girl who's willing to talk back to a glowing angel. She's got, I mean, she's got balls. We forget the nine months, this long, laborious nine months of brutal pregnancy, right? It was probably the most dangerous thing that could happen to a woman in the first century. It remains one of the most dangerous things that a woman can endure in much of our world today. The biblical scholar Courtney Buggs urges her readers to imagine Mary's pregnant body continuing with the rhythms of a fishing community, cleaning, slicing, preparing. Imagine, she says, imagine the strain on her back as she carries water every day from the well. Imagine the, the swelling in her feet as she planted and 
gathered the harvest during the last stages of her pregnancy. Imagine the sweat dripping from her brow as she gathers grain and kneads it into bread for the evening meal. Mary's yes to the angel is not this one-time thing. It's this continuous commitment that she makes over nine months to hang on to the promise that has been made to her despite all evidence to the contrary. She's invited to kind of make her tent, if you like. That's the word that the New Testament uses, right? Echoing God's favorite habitation in Hebrew scripture. Mary is invited to make her tent, her tabernacle, her dwelling in this, this space of, of in-betweenness, this space of unknowing, this space of radical trust and, and creativity, improvisation, this nine-month journey through the wilderness of doubt and pain that tests everything she thinks she knows for sure and asks her to put all of her trust and confidence not in these guys around her who are supposed to protect her. No, Mary is asked to rely utterly and completely on the ancient promises of her people, which is to say that this God of tents, a God of wilderness and darkness, a God who seeks neither temple nor shrine, but instead makes God's home inside Mary's very body. Mary is asked to act as if that God is trustworthy. And in acting as if God is trustworthy, Mary discovers what it means to trust in God. Because it turns out that she is where God is most at home. God never needed the cathedrals that we built. God never asked for organs or stained glass. God wants bodies, right? God wants hands and feet and mouths and ears and amniotic fluid, right? That's God's native country. At best, our, our buildings, our churches and cathedrals can point us to that place. They can give us a space to breathe. They can give us room to discover that the, the places that we thought to look for God are actually much closer than we had thought. Those of you who have been, who have been coming here to the cathedral in, in person for pilgrimage during this pandemic, I suspect many of you have discovered that when you take time and space simply to sit in silence in the vastness of this empty space, something begins to happen to your body, right? Something happens to your breath. It starts to slow down and your shoulders drop a little bit from the high place where we all carry them. Some of the, the weariness, the weight of these fearful days is set aside for just a moment. And like Mary, you begin to find the places where the Holy One of Israel has already taken up residence inside your body. That's God's first and most beautiful kingdom. And these promises that we read about everlasting kingship and dynasties that never end, I mean, that's the political language of power and influence, and there is a place for that language and that imagery. But alongside that kingly, powerful, dynastic imagery comes this other beautiful minority report, the promises that are made not to a king, but to a young girl, maybe 13, 14, 15 years old, living in a tiny little fishing village, maybe 50 families out in some village in Nazareth. And the promise is that if you trust me in this incredible risky way, God says, I will not fail you. I will not let you down. I will not let you go. Instead, I'm going to come and take up residence inside your very body. 
God says to Mary, you and I are going to do this incredible thing together. God says to this 13-year-old girl, I need you. I need you, Mary. You are highly favored, highly regarded. So will you agree to become the living embodiment of the radical promise that nothing will be impossible with God? So here we are, nine months out from the day this cathedral shut down to the public, right around the Feast of the Annunciation, ironically enough. If the ancient promises are to be believed, a seed was planted then, nine months ago, that has been growing in this huge darkness, taking shape among us. And I want to suggest to you that seed is starting to come to life now. We're a week out from the festival of Christmas, the weirdest Christmas festival many of us have known. We watch and we wait with Mary for these first signs, these initial reports of what God is doing and is about to do in our midst, in our bodies. And so with Mary, we pray. Purify our conscience, almighty God, by your daily visitation that your son Jesus Christ at his coming may find in us a mansion, okay, maybe a tent, maybe a sleeping bag under the stars, a place prepared for God's self. May the Holy One be born in us once again.